Welcome to CineSoul. We use cinema to explore what matters to us most. Through conversations about the effects a film's subject, theme, and aesthetics have on our lives. I'm your host, Jorge Castellanos. In this episode, we'll discuss The Shape of Water, the 2018 Oscar winner for Best Picture, directed by Guillermo del Toro, who also won the Oscar for directing. Please note, we recorded this conversation before the 2018 Oscars were awarded. If I told you about her, the princess without voice, what would I say? You may think that thing looks human, stands on two legs, right? But we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? When he looks at me, he doesn't know how I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. If I told you about her, what would I say? I wonder. I'm excited to have uh, my guests, Karen and Dave Robinson, who are from Creative Interfaces. You can find Creative Interfaces at creativeinterfaces.org. They create environments for creative renewal, and they facilitate spiritual and creative development. And they're also really good friends of mine. So I'm excited about uh, us talking about the shape of water and how that impacted us today. Welcome, Karen and Dave. Thank you, Jorge. Thank you. It was fun to see the movie with you. Yes, it was. That was uh, that was your first viewing, right? Yes. Yeah, I saw it for the second time. I might go see it again. I mean, it's just, mm. I just thought, you know, on an aesthetic level, it's beautiful, and it just yeah. made so uh, such an emotional impact on mm. me. But let's start there. What what was your feeling when you walked out of the theater uh, when the movie ended, mm. the closing credits finished, and what were you feeling? What were you thinking? I often walk out of a theater with my intellect triggered, and this was a little different. I knew that there would be some things happening subconsciously that I would visit later, but I walked out with just a really kind of calm feeling of having been affected by the aesthetic sense of it, the beautiful imagery and the kinds of colors that are calming and 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 interesting. and So I was just sort of letting myself feel that, and sure enough, a couple of days later, my brain started to kick in with responding to some of the themes and stuff. Interesting. That was mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. Well, that makes sense for me as far as uh, uh, how how that process happened for you. I mean, you guys are both visual artists, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, painters, etc. And so I would I would think I've heard you express that kind of uh, reaction to to many films mm-hmm. where it sort of hits you on that aesthetic level first. What about you, Karen? There was a lot to ponder. Uh, I liked your word if feeling left you feeling um, satisfied or something like that. You said, and it just seemed like it was a really worthwhile movie because of the themes in the movie that just felt significant and and then again all encompassed in this beautiful uh, way of telling the story, and so it left me feeling really good. Mm. Yeah, me too. I was just blown away. Yeah. Obviously, I've said I want to go see it again, so right. I can't get enough of Shape of Water. 
Um, as the days passed for you, Dave, and you started to engage more intellectually, what, what kind of stuff were you reflecting on? Well, some of the themes, uh, and, you know, each of us responds differently based on what life inside of us presents. But uh, what I found myself exploring was a relationship to otherness. Uh, Eliza's relationship to the creature was the kind of ultimate. He was extremely other. Right. Uh, but then almost every relationship in the film was dealing in some way or another with otherness and handling it really well or handling it really poorly. Uh, and it, I found myself sort of unpacking that a bit. Like when someone's really different and we might think of them as other than ourselves, uh, I asked myself, am I exploring the possibilities towards some, an interesting discovery, maybe even toward something involving love? Or am I exploiting that in some way? Or am I ignoring or avoiding it? Uh, so that got kind of brainy for me. And hmm. I really thought they stimulated a whole lot of thoughts about that. Uh, another theme was communication challenges. Uh, they chose a woman who couldn't speak, and so she lived in not at all in silence, but but she was surrounded by silence at the same time in the sense that she couldn't speak and had to sign. And so the, if you wanted to understand her, what she was saying, you had to sign. And so that communication challenge, uh, there was a theme of silence that came up a few times. Mm. The sort of antagonist, uh, uh, what was his name? The uh, Richard Strickland, the Michael Shannon character? Yes, Strickland yeah. uh, wanted silence. And mm, in his case, I think it was did. because he didn't want communication was screwing up his control, I think. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, there, was mean, the, there was that lovemaking scene with his wife where that was just blatant. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. He just basically told her to shut up. And didn't he put his like hand over her mm-hmm. mouth or something? She said, You're like, bleeding on me. And he wouldn't, he didn't even yeah. hear that. He was just distracted by. You know, stop talking. And and interestingly, in a film that was obviously capable of a lot of beauty, that scene struck me as ugly. Everything Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. And and in the context of lovemaking, to abuse the term a little bit, uh, it was particularly ugly. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, that's part of that. Handling the silence, handling the otherness, handling the... uh, opportunities to communicate and then do you explore that or do you avoid that you know like Karen oh I I loved the relationship with um like Eliza seemed to be the central figure in her relationship with her neighbor and her relationship with the creature but I loved how how her and her neighbor were really close and um almost as close as if they were family you know Mm -hmm. it gave her uh an opportunity to use her um passion or gifts for providing food for him and checking on him and they were meeting each other's needs in some ways that were really really beautiful to see and i enjoyed how that happened that the thought that even though 
we don't have a lot of family maybe around us, if we have friends that that we can cultivate that kind of um, closeness to, life is is um, so much better. So that was that was great to see and. And just her as a um, as a person, I loved the um, the risk taker that she was, and that that just was so obvious in her mm-hmm. um, in in her pursuit of life and and having a job and taking the bus and just um, doing all these all these things that um, get her out by herself in the middle of the night and and then the risk she was willing to take to put her own um, life on the line and her own career and in order to help this um, creature and I just loved how she, how who she was and that was awesome yeah that totally resonated for me too I want to pick up a little bit on what you were talking about just before that this notion of you know having family around you and and I was thinking while you were saying that how this is a woman who is I'll use the term handicapped uh, right, she's mute, mm. and she's not the victim. She doesn't live a victim's life. She she lives what seems to be a fully satisfying life mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. with her neighbor, with her work life, uh, her friend played by Octavia Spencer, Zelda. She doesn't seem to let the fact that she can't speak limit her appreciation of happiness. Right. Or allow that into her life. And that was just really, that was such a great reminder. Now, that's not to say that she's not alone. And at those alone moments, occasionally feels loneliness. Don't Mm -hmm. we all? Mm -hmm. But But that's that's a universal. Yeah. Yeah. That's not wouldn't be due to her handicap per se. And I would think that a lot of us, you know, allow ourselves to be defined by that Mm. to the point that, we think, oh, I'm just going to have to live a lonely life, and I'm just going to have to embrace loneliness as my way of being, which w- wasn't the case for her. Right. Uh, and, and I mean, for me, that, that was just a great reminder mm-hmm. of, you know, aloneness doesn't mean loneliness. Right. And I even got the sense that she enjoyed who she, who she was. When he looks at me, he doesn't know how... I am incomplete. He sees me as I am. Right. I don't think she saw herself as incomplete. Right. I just think she was aware of her differences, and everybody has differences, and these are mine, and this is how I handle it. And Mm so perceived herself to be an equal, and that was really well portrayed. And that's always an option. Yeah, that's so true. And that seems to me that not only did she not see herself as incomplete, I think that the people that she valued most around her didn't see her that way either. Right. Zelda didn't. Right. Giles, mm-hmm. her neighbor, didn't. And certainly the uh, the creature didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the people that did see her as incomplete are the antagonists in the film. Mm-hmm. They're the yeah. people that refuse to see her as anything but other. Who also saw themselves, I would say, as incomplete. Yes. Mm. Desperate need for approval, desperate need for that, that to, to be that, do that something that will finally get them the credit they deserve or. Right. So. And in the case yeah. of Strickland, it's the Cadillac. 
it's yeah. it's the perceived promotion or whatever it is that he's going to get from the general. Living mm-hmm. the family that we see the Giles character draw, right? With the green right. Jello, like <laughs> <laughs> the Jello family. Let's just call it that. Yeah, he wanted to be the Jello family. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's profound, Dave. I want to touch a little bit more on that. You 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 used a great phrase about the other, and you talked about uh, you can explore or exploit. Yeah. Talk a little more about that. Well, I think something happens in in me, and I would think in most people, if not everybody, that when you encounter someone where your dominant feeling is, wow, they're really different, uh, it can activate fear. And for my case, it doesn't, surely doesn't always, but it has, it can, yeah. uh, depending on how I'm perceiving their nature and whether I feel like my peace is threatened or... I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but probably in almost every case, if I explore that, times in my life when I have explored it, where I've been a little bit afraid of somebody, and now it's different if there's a really good reason to be afraid. I'm not talking about sure, sure. Like, like you're actual really danger. Yeah. I'm just talking about that thing inside where I don't know why I'm afraid of this person, and they're, you know, they're just really different. And when I explore that, I'm thinking in every single case, I end up better for it. I end up expanded. I end up understanding more. I understand more about myself. I become stronger. Everything about it is growth. And if I ignore that or avoid it, the obvious antithesis happens where I don't learn. Yeah. And in fact, I might even sort of encase a comfort zone and set a precedent for not exploring the next one. And so it's, it's, mm. I'm the loser in that case. Yeah. As for exploiting, that's harder to articulate. But I think, you know, we use the word exploit with like uh, somebody with obvious power over others. Mm. Uh, but I think there's little ways in which we can use each other just as so-called regular folks, you know, that yeah. is a kind of exploiting. I, let me think about that. I, I don't have a good example offhand. No, that's that's good. Karen, it sounded like you were going to say something while Dave was talking. Oh, no, I just just thought of another um, theme that I really liked, and it involved the the neighbor, Giles. It seemed like he kind of went through, maybe call it a transformation, where he seemed to be looking in the first part of the movie for um, approval and... um, having hopes set on maybe getting his job back and becoming the graphic artist he wanted to be and um, needing approval from that person and, and seeking out this possible sexual um, exploration from the guy at the um, cafe, the pie shop. Yes. The pie shop. And, and he was, um, you could tell he valued Eliza, but he was looking outside Mm -hmm. for some fulfillment. And I loved how, um, the movie showed what I feel like is so true that if you um, get a really good look at, at what the people around you and what you really have, um, it seems like um, there's just a lot more there that 
is real and satisfying and and worthwhile. Uh, like and that. I'm surprised that it's making me feel emotional, but um, so he he realized that he realized in a way, you know, where where real life for him was and um, the treasure in his relationship with her. That was just really um, a meaningful journey in the movie with him. Mm, yeah. And she brought out the best in him. And I think he realized that, you know, these other people in his life, he was like kind of looking outside what, what, what he already had for value. And it was really there all along right next door, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So it just, it was a beautiful theme and it just makes me kind of emotional. Think about, we can easily do that in our lives, you know? Yeah. Can I bounce off that? Like, uh, that scene where he shows up at her door after they've kind of had a parting. Uh, and he's just straightforward. He's like, basically, you're all I have. Mm-hmm. And yes, I'll do this thing with you that's mm-hmm. like super high risk and illegal, and I'm not good at it. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was his big line, I'm not good at this. And he was willing to complete, mm-hmm. like, because of what you were just saying. Like, basically, you're my people. And why would I not fully show up for that? And... That was a beautiful kind of moment where at the in that moment for me it felt like I said like cheering, like he's a hero oh, in that yeah. moment. Yeah. And and it's interesting that that the way Del Toro structured it anyways, he, he couldn't come to that point until he had two rejections. He got rejected right. at work from his former it sounds like boss and maybe mm. they were more than that. Yeah, uh, I wondered about that. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. and and from out. the guy at the pie shop. Uh, so I think I think he came to a point of mm. a tipping point, let's say. Yeah, in his own self reflection of, wait a minute, what am I what am I saying no to my neighbor for when she's the most important thing in my life? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, he even says at the very beginning, early in the movie, where she brings him a sandwich on her way to work. She's like, I mean, if you if it weren't for you, I'd starve. Mm-hmm. You know, he's just he's taken care of by her. Mm-hmm. So, and it's interesting to me also how I think that kind of ties in somehow to his initial reaction um, about the creature. How why should we help him? He's not even human, right? You know, and then she's got that great retort that, and mm. if we don't, neither are we. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he doesn't he doesn't grasp that and he doesn't really see the creature as a valuable being right until he interacts with the creature yeah and and mm. sees its humanity if i can use that phrase and 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 it's tested immediately yes he's testing the waters of his uh like relating to this thing as a kind of as a fellow person, and then it eats his cat. <laughs> and and for, I wondered, like, well, is this relationship destroyed, you know, right, because right. that's unforgivable or something. And he totally forgives him. And, and, and there's this line. Where he's, it's, he's a wild creature. He didn't know what he was doing. Right. And he used the term wild creature, but it was clearly in the guy's defense. Yeah, mm. for yeah. sure. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And beautifully. So. Yeah. <laughs> 
And the guy does, you know, the creature does give him hair. <laughs> <laughs> so he does walk away with something. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Which is another theme. Go ahead. Uh, so in the script, they wrote him in as uh, the people in the Amazon worship this river creature. As river a god. god. Yeah. River god. And they could have just let that be a comment about primitive peoples or something. But you know, scripts don't write themselves. Somebody was thinking something there with the river god idea. Mm. And at the very end of the movie, yeah, it's like, damn, this is a god. Yeah. you know, Or whatever the line, something... Uh, divinity aside, yes. just the idea that um, those who interacted with this creature weren't just better for it, but actually experienced kind of something miraculous. Yeah. Like, like guys' hair started mm. to grow. Yeah. People, you know, in the end, of course, Eliza's saved. Yeah. Physically. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and transformed. Yes. Is, I mean, yes. Maybe that's arguable. Maybe right, right. her transformation is unlocked. Right. Maybe it was always in her. But it's a quantum leap forward regardless. Yeah. Uh, so there's something about him that's not just other. Yeah. But that's centered and maybe perfect. Something that's powerful. And when you interact with it in an exploratory way, in a loving way, and like it has gifts to give, I guess that's. Yeah. Mm. I like that. Mm. I like that. I I think that's definitely mm-hmm. part of Del Toro's intention here. Uh, he's talked about it in interviews mm. uh, where he intended, you know, this to be about loving the other. Uh, mm. You know, he's a, he's an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm an immigrant. I relate to a lot of the stuff behind what he wrote. Yeah. And uh, he's engaging in these times. I'm engaging in these times and with a lot of different feelings about how society's dealing with the other mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that includes immigrants uh, like Del Toro, like me, like other people. Yeah. And so that notion that if we could just engage with the other enough to break down that sense of otherness that's preventing us. You talked about it earlier in our conversation day. That's preventing us from really uh, seeing the person without prejudice uh, and and in effect more clearly mm-hmm. that uh, that what you might encounter is not only a, a clarity of vision about that person, but you might encounter something miraculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, right. I, I think absolutely. Even if you have prejudice, you can approach it truthfully, and just like I I feel this judgment inside me, and nevertheless I choose to see beyond it, and I'm going to. Step around it, and I'm you know you can mm. you can pass that yeah, uh, and there's a miraculous. Everybody knows that we're far more beautiful and powerful connected than disconnected. Yeah, for sure. So it kind of speaks. I mean, yeah, if you can connect where it's hard to connect, all the more beautiful. Yeah, it yeah. does. It does make sense that uh, we all have things to offer each other. And I hadn't thought about that aspect of the movie, but whether you're an immigrant or any other person that's even extremely different in any way, there's still things you have to offer, and we each have to offer each other. 
that could be seen as gifts. And Yeah. It's so interesting that, because I think Del Toro was conscious about this as well as he created the film. I think he talked about it in an interview that I read where we live in times where people have chosen their default position to be cynicism. Mm. And that, that default position just creates an automatic barrier to reaching sort of the kinds of quality of relationship we're talking about of engagement even with, with people that we even don't agree with that Mm -hmm. don't share a vision with. And so this notion of, of trying to find me, the, the film has continues to work in me in this desire to become better at engaging with others, especially lately that I seem inundated by who don't share my vision. Mm. And, and yet mm. I want to not see them as other in the sense of demonizing them or falling into that trap of dismissing them yeah. uh, just because they hold a view that's not like mine. Uh, and yet that's a, that's a huge challenge for me. Not only a challenge conceptually, but practically. Of yeah. uh, trying to put myself into places where I can engage with someone and and sort of you know mm. decide not to live in my default reaction of kind of anger and and fear and other things that are related to all that sort of otherness that I've that has been ascribed uh, for my expectation. That's so. great. That it makes me think of the the river god being his perspective on it and being the other in this movie that was so extremely different. He was, I'm sure, very alone in that, surrounded by everyone who who were different than him. That's definitely difficult if you're in the minority. And he modeled, uh, I just now realized this, he was modeling proactively reaching out in his circumstance he was captured and like an animal right and uh, caged caged right mm. in the worst way in a way so uh you would think he would be sort of balled up in his own terror and in that context mm. he was able to look out and see well here's a person i can connect with and did mm-hmm. and worked at it and so he, I, I just kind of suddenly saw that. He was mm-hmm. modeling, like, how it works. Mm. And you don't have to be in a good place to do it. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's wow. a great point. Yeah. Wow, yeah. I mean, that was a fantasy, but I found it believable. Yeah. Well, there's, the best fantasy has kernels of truth. Totally. Right? Best science fiction, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like that. So, and that's interesting because n- not only... Did he find it within himself to be able to see Eliza as someone different from the rest of the humans that he's interacted with in this context, which have been kind of oppressive, yeah. uh, kind of, yeah. you know, to see the say the least. Yeah. But so he 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 he's able to see her not even as kind of a neutral person, but as an ally. 
and then form a deeper bond that let's just call it love between them that, I mean, who would have thought that he'd gotten caged and would find his love, Mm. right? I'm sure that the river God didn't even think of that, Mm. you know? So there's, there's a lesson there for us us as well, I think, Yeah, you know? That that speaks of hope, but um, not giving up and, there's, there's, that's a theme in the world if you look for it. I think you have to look a little bit just for a moment. If I could digress on a parallel, like digress, uh, digress there, away. There's a, uh, the source and the names aren't coming to me, but I can find them. Um, the guy was a GI in Vietnam in 1968 and horrible circumstance. Uh, in the 90s, all these years later, he went back specifically to North Vietnam, to the quote-unquote enemy, to interact because he could never shake some of the effect on him. And he wanted to interact with what was formerly known as an enemy and, like, be in their homes and eat their food and give himself to that culture in some way. Mm. Uh, And he ended up becoming, like, tight best friends with us, with a guy he was specifically... Fighting, who they found out that they were both on the same battlefield, shooting at each trying other, trying to shoot the crap essence, out of each other, yeah. and so he goes and visits Vietnam. The guy comes over, and visits the states, and and there's this amazing kind of miraculous mm. relationship, mm. Uh, and that's a whole other story, and it's amazing and it's beautiful. Yeah, uh, but it's a similar thing, like. That's not science fiction. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. That's, that's reality. I mean, that, that makes me think of the latest Ken Burns series on the Vietnam War. I don't know if you guys have seen that, mm-hmm. but it's, I just recommend it highly. And, and for, for one of the big reasons that I recommend it is because it, it takes a look at sort of that kind of an encounter. It, uh, it, it treats the war in not only the macro sense of, you know, societies against each other, if you will, but then brings it down to uh, people. And it, maybe not that kind of very specific story that you just told, but there is some American with Vietnamese interaction, mm. soldiers yeah. on soldiers yeah. kind of mm. a thing that come to know each other and, and put aside yeah. whatever it was that found them in in the first circumstances shooting each other or mm. trying to shoot each other, so... So, yeah. Well, I'm just wondering if any of the things that we've been talking about, how each of us is maybe trying to engage those things in our real lives. You know, where where are the, the sort of touchstones that take it beyond the theoretical, if you will, or the, the intellectual, but better dealing with it in a, in a practical sense, you know? I mean, you were telling me a story off mic before we started our conversation about uh, a homeless guy around your neighborhood and uh, the encounters that you were witnessing between that person and the and the police and and the other things that it made you feel. I think there's some resonance there. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a sense of otherness. Uh, a strong temptation to speculate about 
rather than interact with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to fear him because he's unstable, it looks like, you know, and kind of mentally unstable. You mean. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and to avoid, you know, out of a sense of fear and, um, in that way. Yeah. There's some parallel there. Um, uh, I'm not trying to put you on the spot or anything, you know, just trying to bring up sort of, I'm just thinking about in my own story, dealing with for a short part of my life coming off the street. And after that, for about a year and a half, overtly working with people trying to be helpful who were uh, what you might call street people. This was in the upper Haight in San Francisco. Uh, that left me not fearing that it became a known rather than an unknown. Uh, hmm. But so I haven't experienced fear with this guy, but I've experienced just sort of the sort of tragic, sad, mm-hmm. Why does it have to be so challenging to connect with somebody, you know, Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. there's maybe a time to sort of have to swallow that there are times we can't connect. Mm. Mm. And in light of everything we're talking about, I hate that. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that that's ultimately the case, but certainly on a given day. Yeah. It might be the case. But at least... If we get there, it's it's as a result of a, a sort of work through conclusion rather than a presumption without engagement. Mm. Yeah, right? that's, that's yeah, well yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. right. I mean, because you've acknowledged it, exactly, and, and we all acknowledge that you know there are people we can't engage with. It, it's just that's that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish. And say, oh, you know, we should be able to engage with every single person. Right. Yeah, I think that's not true. But I also think it's not really the issue. Yeah. There are ample opportunities that can be explored uh, and grown into. And, you know, I think it's a minority of those that are yeah. truly unapproachable or truly dangerous. Or uh, it's at least a minority. It's. It shouldn't, shouldn't, I think that would be the voice of fear telling us to not try or yeah, uh, to focus too much on that. But on the other hand, it's important to acknowledge it. Yeah, I think one, one of the areas, the themes of the film that we've acknowledged is this, how should I put it, this kind of learning to love beyond words, learning to have a level of communication that could lead to love, an expression of love mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily need word and the right words to make it happen. And I'm, I'm a person that's so reliant mm-hmm. on words. I'm, I like word smithing. Yeah. Right. You're I like, good at it. I like choosing the right <laughs> word. I try, but I, I often, I mean, I've been challenged by this film to think about, you know, do I rely too much on whatever I need to say in order to express my care Mm. love for someone and neglect whatever I might be able to do to express that in ways that don't include words. I think about my parents who are aging um, rapidly. It feels like, Mm. Uh, and, and my dad had a stroke. And so his communication capacity has diminished in the last couple of years. And, 
and my mom's getting sort of scattered mentally and she's pretty frail. And, and sometimes when they interact with me, I find myself at a loss at what I can say in order to have the right response to whatever my mom is sharing with me or how she's seeming to feel. And I'm starting to realize, or I'm, I think maybe I'm getting better at realizing that she just sometimes needs somebody to listen to and to be comforted by. That isn't about what I might say to her. Mm -hmm. It's just the Mm -hmm. tone that I might take with her. Right. And that if I'm with her to just sit with her and, and put my arm around her and hug her or whatever, and just Mm -hmm. without, without this plan or, or here's the thing I've thought about and wrestled over and, I'm ready to deliver to you as the thing we should do as opposed to, I don't know. Let's just sit here and be with each other. And that may give her a sense of permission to not have to come up with words and stuff herself. Like that it's okay to be with and yeah, and that that's not uh, deficient or yeah. less than. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, for all of our words in the world, uh, I think what we're getting at is to connect. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, if you can get there anyway, it's kind of the whole point. So true. Uh, there's a in the film a sense of I think I read this right. I don't know what the director would say, but they seem to be showing uh, longing. Mostly in Eliza's part, but in some of the others too. Longing for intimacy and because they risked, they ended up with some intimacy. Not like they'd originally envisioned. Right. uh, Obviously. So I I can see easily where that happens with Eliza. Where else do you see it in the film? Or do you see it anywhere else? I think with uh, Giles where he's kind of going on this assumption that uh, well, let's see. Yeah, I guess I didn't see longing for it on his part. With him, it was more that same scene at, the, at her door when he... So more like a realization. Right. Like, I was about to give this up. This is where my intimacy is, yeah. at least right now. Mm-hmm. And Well, he does long. Yeah, there's I something. Mean, it's definitely. Not, I mean, you know, he longs for a companion that mm-hmm. might be the pie guy. Right, right, right. You know, he longs for a more satisfying work life or a return to a relationship with his boss that is only hinted at, yeah, if at all. There's so a subtle, there is longing on his part. Yeah. When he keeps saying, uh, I think this is some of my best work. Yes, he does. Every time he gets a new thing finished. Yeah. And then there's a scene later with no words where it shows this drawing he's done of, Eli- of when he walked in and saw them, and there's this Eliza and the creature embracing, and he he paints that, and there's no comment. And as a viewer, I'm thinking in my head, I think this is some of his best work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so kind of in that comment, he's kind of asking like, yeah, like I'm worthwhile, right? Yeah. And then finally, in that. Closer think, relationship with her, he produces, I, I'm saying, some of his best work. Do you think that he was at a point then in his own growth where he didn't need 
to sell himself and yeah. and he felt the value of what he did yeah, and he was just producing an artistic impression valuable in its own right of what he experienced mm-hmm. seeing that embrace and that was his way of actually in some way participating in it mm-hmm. yeah but that stuff happened without any explanation or words. Uh, so it's, Yeah, that's true. Of course, I mean, it's film. It's <laughs> obviously <laughs> the not image all counts. <laughs> <laughs> it's film. The image counts. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I heard uh, Del Toro express in an interview was how if this was a more conventional, you know, thriller, horror movie, the kind of film that inspired him to make this, that he used to, as a kid, watch matinees, oh. you know, like Creature yeah. of the Black Lagoon yeah. is the most obvious yeah. parallel. But that if, if if he had chosen to make it sort of conventionally, then it would be the, it would be the agent that would be the hero. And the creature would be this slimy, disgusting horror thing. Mm. And they would go through the front door because that's where the heroes go. But in this version of the story, the heroes all go through the back door. They go through the servant's entrance. Mm. Right? They're the people that are the cleaning women. (laughs) They're the people that (laughs) That work on the loading dock. That was great. And that that was not only a an aesthetic choice for him, but a political choice. That's a political statement he's making. Mm. That that the heroes in the story are the mar- marginalized one. Are the are the people at the okay? Let's use the the analogy of the bottom of the ladder as opposed mm. to on the top rungs. And that they initiate the change that mm. that is important, and and that they have the. I mean, they're they're their heroes mm-hmm. in a sense, and mm-hmm. I found that very powerful and also very uh, inspirational uh, for our times mm-hmm. when it when it seems like those without power and those without resources uh, are, are more and more being seen as worthless, uh, which really bothers me, and obviously yeah. I don't agree with. I and- get. Go ahead. I was just saying, along with that, the I thought the scientist, Dr. Hofstetler, I thought he was a hero. He seemed to find this greater value for this for life and for this this creature and the beauty in it he saw and the just the value in it transcended his love for his country and and, and his career and and he was also willing to risk. It was a group effort that they they ended up needing his help. And he was also other in the sense that he was from an, another country pretending to be a U.S. scientist and um, didn't identify with with his country at all, mm-hmm. you know. And and so he was he was risking a lot. He was. Um, prioritizing things that I think are, are way more important than than he could have. And um, I thought of him as quite the hero, too. This creature is intelligent, capable of language, 
of understanding emotions. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. Yeah, I mean, he sort of gives his life to save the creature mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. He sacrificed mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. And it's interesting, as one of the things that I was thinking about while you were talking, Karen, was, was this notion of he was a scientist more than he was an agent. Mm, right? That's true. And because he was a scientist, he let science guide mm. his feeling. He, the science in him, the scientist that he is, saw the creature as, as a discovery of great value and worth that you don't kill in order to learn more about. You engage with as well as you can, and you learn truth through that engagement. Mm. And, you know, that's, that doesn't seem to be part of the prevailing power structure's point of view about science mm. right now. Mm. And, and I think that was also intentional on Tor Del Toro's part. Mm. So, you know, he could have easily made him a climatologist uh, mm. if it was a different kind of story. Right. And that mm. would be a more direct connection. But, mm. but still, interesting. You were going to say something, Dave, while Karen was... Uh, when you were saying that, uh, I can't quote you, but... Uh, about the times we're in and the marginalized and mm. the, uh, as somebody who focuses on the arts a lot, I feel a lot of hope and it's not, not because, not because I disagree because I don't, but because as artists do in this case, Del Toro, uh, the voice comes up at the same time, right? Exposing, uh, like, so this stuff is happening. Right. But there's this film that's using kind of a fantasy sci-fi thing in the perfect way, rather than a direct, don't do that, here's what you should do. He right. just tells a story. Right. He pulls a Jesus on us and <laughs> stops and tells a story, you know. And, uh, and you're taken in by the story and you start taking, it affects you. And then you're forced by your own thoughts to possibly rethink. Anyway, I, that's why I have hope because I think in the world of art, and I mean that in the holistic sense, yeah. film and music and visual. Right. And the arts. The arts, uh, as they always have been, are kind of the cultural conscience mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah. Uh, and it's, they're doing their thing and that's out there too. Yeah. And this is a prime mm -hmm. example of that. Very true. How else does this film make you feel, make you think, make you want to connect with your world, with the people in it? The film in, inspires me to get at my own artistic production, if you will. Mm. I just, it in, that's not a specific response to the story, but it's a, uh, because of the sense of being inspired and the sense of its power, mm. I'm left like, damn, I better step up to my own calling. You know what I mean? Some of yeah, okay. definitely. That's great. Yeah. Especially because I, I know you well enough to know that uh, your art can be a rich 
area of your life. And as I think all artists experience, uh, it's easy to get distracted by other things in life and other demands that the world puts on us, yeah. etc. And a lot of times exercising our artistic side usually means putting aside the other things that we need to exercise in order to pay rent and buy food and blah, 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 you know, meet our commitments to people, et cetera. I mean, the, the artist's life can be kind of singularly focused in order to create the kind of art that you need to have come out of you. And that's, that's a hard challenge. I know you, you're experiencing that as, as you're spending more time painting, Karen. Mm. I'm really enjoying it, but it, it is, um, trying to keep up um, a high standard of doing art that feels worthwhile and meaningful. And that is, that is challenging. And it's good to hear you want to produce more art. It, it, I've, I've thought of stories as a muse to mm. inspire a production of art and new ideas and, and, and all and I guess I've never thought of a film being a muse. Mm. Like it, it, it sounds like it is for you. And, but it's just another way of telling a story. So it, that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, as we close, I'll just ask, uh, uh, what else have you been seeing lately in the theaters or on, on streaming or DVD or whatever that, uh, that you thought, oh wow, this I really like this film, or and not that we're going to break it down right now, but just you know, I'm sure our viewers might be interested in, or excuse me, our listeners <laughs> might be interested in knowing what uh, what else is out there that you guys have seen lately. Well, I have to say this isn't new. We last weekend we watched the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite stories of all time. Did you read the books when you were younger? I read the books when I was young and have seen the movies when they came out. And we just made a weekend of it. And that that is full of inspiration. I came away, seriously, wanting to paint a gigantic map of Middle Earth. Wow. Wouldn't that be fun? All right. I'll drive by the studio and see how that's (laughs) progressing. (laughs) Anyway. Don't forget the Shire. What about you, Dave? I rewatched The Martian recently. Is that the uh, one with Matt Damon? Yeah. Where he's sort of stranded he's, on he's Mars? Stranded on Mars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I enjoy that. Somehow, I think, for the most part, it ends up being believable, this thing that's absurdly impossible. And right. I find myself believing it as the way they portray But uh, <laughs> The magic film. <laughs> yes. Uh I haven't seen anything real uh, new since this, Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, if of all the films you could see out there, this is certainly one of the best. Yeah. I'm glad you recommended it. And do you have another recommendation? I like to get your. Well, as as far as the films that are getting a lot of attention, certainly uh, Lady Bird is a, Mm. is a great one. They're very different kind of film, but than the one we've just discussed, but but also a, a great film and a great realization of uh, of art mm. by Greta Gerwig and and her cast and and everyone else. 
really, really, really like that. And also, I just saw for the second time Phantom Thread, Paul Thomas Anderson's mm, I haven't seen it yet. latest I haven't film, seen it. and that was extremely powerful. I'm, and, I'm a Lewis and, fan. I, I mean, that's yeah. I'd like to see that. Yeah, well, he's amazing in it as usual. It might be the last film that he does. He's he's officially said that he's going to retire wow. from acting. So we'll we'll see if that holds true. But but uh, hmm. that would be a shame for the public because he's he's an amazing actor. Yeah. Maybe the actor oh, yeah. of his generation. So, but m- more so than than just his work and. There are a couple of other performances in the film that are just amazing. Mm. Uh, but the entire uh, piece of art that uh, director Anderson has created is just fantastic. Mm. It's it's certainly up there as one of a small handful of films that I, I just feel are really at the top of the game, so mm. to speak, really at the top of the craft. Wow. Uh, so it, it, like... Uh, the Shape of Water in a lot of ways. You walk away from it thinking, wow, that was that was profoundly good filmmaking. Mm. And uh, so I recommend that highly. Okay. Yeah, Start there, put it that way. <laughs> well, Karen and Dave, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation at Cinesol. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Jorge. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about Cinesoul at our website, Cinesoul.com. That's C-I-N-E-S-O-U-L.com, where you can leave us your comments or questions. This episode was co-produced and edited by Ben Helms, who also wrote and produced our theme. Cinesoul is hosted by the Overthink Podcast Network, which publishes a multitude of podcasts that dive deep into arts, media, and culture. You can find The Overthink on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at overthinkpod.com. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time.